Turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy and chapter 4. First Timothy four, and we'll read verse 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now we're going to read a couple of other passages here in this letter to Timothy. But I just want you to notice the expression at the beginning of this verse, verse 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Or keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Now, I know it's the afternoon session of a conference and you can get sleepy and I don't want to get technical at all here. Um, I would like to hold your attention. But just as a little bit of a background so you'll understand what it is that I'm trying to communicate and get across It's important for you to understand a little bit this letter, this letter that Paul writes to Timothy. It's near the end of Paul's life of service. Historically, it would land at the period just following the end of the book of Acts. So at the very end of Acts, he's in prison and he writes what we call the prison epistles, uh, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and the letter to Philemon. And then he was likely released from that prison. And during that period of time, he writes to Timothy. And then he's re-imprisoned, now as a criminal, and that's when he writes 2 Timothy. That's important for two reasons. First of all, it gives us a little insight into where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's well along in his Christian service and he's near the end. Secondly, it's important because of the one that he's writing to. Timothy, the one that he's writing, this first and second epistle to, is likely the closest person to the Apostle Paul. In all of his service, all of his journeys, all of his travels, the many people he had seen saved, the many co-workers that he had, there is no one closer to his heart than Timothy. And you certainly see that by the second letter that he writes from the dungeon just before he dies. The, letter to first Tim- the first letter to Timothy uh, touches on a lot of different subjects. It, really, the purpose of the letter has to do with the assembly at Ephesus. And uh, Paul's not able to get there right away, so he writes to Timothy and he says, if I'm delayed, chapter 3, verse 15, says, if I'm delayed in getting there, I'm writing you this letter so that you'll know how one ought to behave in the house of God. So he's dealing with a number of things, a number of issues, not necessarily problems, just things that need to be addressed in assembly life. And so he talks about overseers, he talks about men publicly praying, he talks about sisters remaining silent, he talks about widows being looked after, and so on. But I don't have time to do it today, but I would encourage all of you, not just young men, young men, young women, young married couples, some of you who, like me, are in this glorious phase called midlife, just waiting for the crisis to hit. There's Harley-Davidson's on sale with leather jackets (laughs) and a vast country with expansive prairies to ride across. But no, 55 years old, I'm not likely to make it to 110, So whatever phase of life you might be in, go through this letter, 1 Timothy, and you will come across, you'll deal with sections, deal with all these subjects, then you will come across, interspersed through the letter, sections where Paul very directly and very personally and in a very probing way 
he talks to Timothy directly. And he gives Timothy instruction. And it's as though he's saying, Timothy, this isn't for the overseers. It's not for the widows. It's not for the sisters. It's not for the men. This is for you. You, Timothy, you do this. And you be sure you do this. And so on. When you come to the second epistle, there's even more of that. It's an even more personal letter. So I have read a summary, if you will, of Paul's personal direction to Timothy in writing this first epistle. And he says here in verse 16 of chapter 4, Timothy, take heed unto thyself and take heed to the doctrine. So I'd like to ask all of you today, how are things with you spiritually? How are things with you in your Christian walk? How are things with you in your walk with the Lord, your participation in his service, living your life for him, showing your devotion to him, interacting with other believers for him, reaching out to the unsaved for him. How are things? Take stock. Because that's what Paul's telling Timothy to do. And you know, very often, if we begin to answer that question, most of us, I think, would say, well, things aren't that great. And um, why? And please, I'm not belittling anyone's circumstances today. We might say, well, you know, I was doing okay, but... Then, you know, there's somebody that I put a lot of confidence in and they let me down. It's really thrown me for a loop. Or I was doing pretty well and then as I spoke in my earlier message, somebody did something and it really hurt and I just can't seem to get back on my feet. I'm just really struggling. Or I was doing okay, but, you know, the place where I go, I just, I never seem to get any encouragement. And, or I'm doing okay, but, you know, the friends I'm with aren't much help to me. They just kind of drag me down. We are masters. At looking around at all of the reasons why maybe I'm not doing what I should or how I could be living to honor God. I love what Paul says to Timothy. And I would like to just, as spoken to my own soul the last few months, and I would love with God's help to get it through to you today. Whoever you are, young brother, young sister, whatever age in life, young married couples, take heed to yourself. Not in a selfish, self-gratifying way. But in a sense of shouldering the accountability. God saved you as an individual. The Spirit of God came to dwell in you. If you're a married couple, He has brought you together for His honor. He's given you His Word. He's given you His Spirit. He's promised to use you before He takes you home to heaven. And in God's name today, step up. If I could use a baseball analogy, step up to the plate. And take responsibility. It's no one else's fault if you are not making progress for God as you should. It's yours in the fear of God. So I would just like to read a couple of passages. And please, I'm not doing this in a harsh way. I'd like to read a couple of passages in this letter that have to do with take heed to thyself. Self-assessment. If you want a title, self-assessment for the man of God. Timothy is the only man actually called a man of God in the New Testament. So self-assessment. So turn with me, first of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is one of these passages where we're going along through chapter 6. And uh, he's talking about contentment and godliness and the love of money in verse 10 and so on. Then he comes to verse 11. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. And I'm going to suggest that this whole idea of taking heed unto thyself, a self-assessment in the presence of God, the first thing you're going to deal with is the character of the individual. My character. Character is much more than personality. 
Personality is who I am by birth. That's just, we're all different. We all have different personalities. We're all a unique little bundle of strengths and weaknesses, things that are maybe lovable, although some you really search hard to find them, and things that are incredibly annoying, which you don't have to search for at all because they're right out in the open. But we're all unique, every one of us. Character is something that the Spirit of God can develop in us. Character is that Christ-likeness that by the Spirit of God bearing fruit, working with my brokenness and my personality, can actually bring about the character of Christ to some degree in me and in my life. And so right in the middle of dealing with this section of, of covetousness and the love of money, verse 10, verse 11, But thou, O man of God, here it is, you, Timothy, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, patience, meekness. The idea of fleeing is pretty obvious, right? It's run away from something. Something that has the capacity to hurt you. Do I need to say today, at 3 o'clock on this November Saturday afternoon, do I need to say that we live in a world that is absolutely corrupt with the love of money? And materialism. And covetousness. And the, the hopeless belief. Disproven thousands of times. That things will not make us happy. And possessions will not fill the void in our soul. And wealth will not solve every problem. And all the money in the world. And all the success the world gives. Will never give us meaning and purpose in life. We say those things. I let them flow off my tongue. I trust they're coming from my heart. And I live in the same world you do. We struggle with it every single day. But listen to what Paul says to Timothy. And the Spirit of God says to you and me today. As you take heed to yourself, there is a monster out there in the world called materialism, covetousness. And it will destroy you as a Christian. What should your response be? Run from it. Flee from it. Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Don't flirt with it. Get away. Now, in chapter 2 of the second epistle, he uses the same word, flee, when it comes to youthful lusts. So more broadly, you could apply it to moral issues and sexuality and all of these other lustful things that cater to our flesh. There's a fellow that I work with. Um, Nathan up here works with him too. His name is Chris Boomhauer. He hates bees. It gets, it's actually a... I, mean, I, I won't even tell you what I call him because it's not very Christ-like. But he's like deathly afraid of bees. He sees a bee and he squeals like he's a little six-year-old. And he just runs. I thought it was like, Chris, why are you so afraid of bees? Like, they're not going to bother you. Just keep working. But he is terrified. He is convinced when he sees a bee that, that he's not allergic to them. But he's convinced if the bee stings him, it's just going to be absolutely terrible. You know, because he's so afraid of bees, I have never had to explain to Chris Boomhauer what it is to flee <laughs> or to run. I've never had to say, hey, Chris, by the way, right behind your head there, buzzing around, there's a bee. And here's what I think an appropriate response would be. I think you should drop your tools and forget about the tent we're trying to install and run the other way and dance around at the edge of the platform. I don't think that, I've never had to do that because he just does it instinctively. Why? Because he is afraid of bees. Are you afraid of materialism? I am. I honestly am. Because I don't have it solved. If you've got it solved, please come and help me. Because I don't, and I don't know that we ever will, all kidding aside. But you're growing up in a world, maybe just for a minute, let me speak to younger ones, young couples, young single people. 
And subconsciously hammering into your understanding of life is this idea. I'm going to finish college. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to start a business. We're going to achieve our goals. You hit this page of life I'm at. We're going to put money back for retirement. When will we have enough? And we're going to get freedom. Talk about freedom 55. I'm there, but I haven't made it yet. And, and that's the world we live in. And, and honestly, there isn't an easy answer. Right? Let me just use one example. Cars. Right? So you say, well, you know, it would be really, really inappropriate for a Christian who's living for eternity and understands you lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth. It would be really, really inappropriate for a Christian to buy a $350,000 lotus. It's just, you know, that's, that's definitely covetous. That's, right? Most of us would agree, wouldn't you? Like, even if you're a millionaire, even if you were, you know, a really successful uh, eye doctor from northern Ontario and you could afford to buy a lotus, <laughs> it would be really inappropriate for you to drop. We would all agree that's, Right? Okay, um, we did a, a tent job this summer at a golf course in Toronto that had tons of them parked. So you say, yeah, that's, that's really bad. So what should we drive? Like, should we all drive $5,000 Chevrolet Chevettes that are going for their 400,000th mile? And you say, yes, that would make a good Christian. That's a sure sign of a person that's not covetous. I mean, I'm using extremes to make a point. But I think the point is there's no magic line. You can't say, well, no, actually a $60,000 car is the limit. Over $60,000, you're covetous. Under $60,000, you're Christ-like. <laughs> the point is there is no magic line. And the same goes for phones. And the same goes for retirement savings. And the same goes for houses. So the problem is that we live in a world where we've got this monster called covetousness and materialism and this thirst and this desire. And we just think, if I could only get enough... Paul says, you flee that. You recognize it for what it is, and you take steps, however you have to do it, to carve out in your mind a healthy fear of the danger and damage that'll cause. It'll ruin your character. But then he says, follow some things, pursue some things, and he gives us six things that are really things to do with my inward character. The first two are likely describing the way I am before God. Righteousness and godliness. Justification, God declares that I'm righteous before him. But this is not that. This is the outworking of practical righteousness. So am I a lover of things that are good? Uh, do I actually... I hope I don't flirt with sin. I hope I don't find sin attractive. I hope I don't live a life with an appetite that um, is constantly being fed by things that are contrary to God's holiness and God's character. That's the opposite of righteousness. Godliness is God's character. If you go through the other's faith, whether that's uh, trust in God or whether that's faithfulness in terms of consistency and commitment, love, love for God, patience, meekness, or steadfastness, gentleness you have in the ESV. Can I just ask you, if you took those six, honestly, this is self-assessment, okay? Please don't assess me and I'm not assessing you. If I ask you to take heed to yourself, and maybe you're a 19-year-old here, you've never really thought of it this way, you take your life. You take your heart in the presence of God. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Say, to what degree am I pursuing these things? To what degree do I look at these things as virtues? As things that I want to aim for? That if I'm 19 today and the Lord spares me 10 years go by at 29, those years through my 20s, they were characterized by character being developed. Where I loved righteousness. Not so I'd be proud of it, but because it was the tenor of my life. And the character of Christ was actually growing within me. 
And I showed faithfulness and I behaved in love. Or what do you want to accomplish by the time you're 29? Or if you're a young married couple here, what is your aim? What's your goal? We, we tend to get drawn down into very earthbound goals. My goal is to, you know, finish my education. I've already said that. My goal is to, or our goal is to save up enough to buy a house. My goal is to find a job. Well, you need that. Um, but, but what's your real goal spiritually? That's what Paul's writing to Timothy about. And it's as though Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I'm leaving and you're staying. And I want more than anything else. I want you to get a grasp of this, Timothy. Go after these things. Everything else that you'll go after in life doesn't really matter squat if it does not develop character for God. But if you turn back now to chapter 4 again. In chapter 4, it's not so much the character, the inward character of the man that Paul's driving at when he says, take heed to thyself. It's his conduct. And so in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity or love. In spirit, most translations would leave out that spirit. There's not a lot of manuscript support for it. In faith and in purity. So if you look at this, Paul is saying to Timothy, who the word young here would likely mean Timothy was in his 30s. So he was less than 40. And if you're a woman here and you're 39, that means you're young. So that's how youth was measured. So he's less than 40. Um, and because of that, there's a possibility that he would be looked down on that people might find it hard to take much instruction from Timothy and given the role that he was expected to fulfill for God there in Ephesus it was important that he had credibility in front of people it's interesting when Paul says to him let no man despise thy youth he's not at all giving license to assertion in other words he's not saying to Timothy listen don't let people despise you for being young you stand up for yourself and you just take the platform and you just take the public place and you just assert yourself not at all what he says that's the spirit of our age i'm not talking among christians i'm just talking the spirit of our age in general in the corporate world and in society but it creeps its way into our behavior paul says no he says don't if i could paraphrase it don't give people a reason to despise you for your youth never provide an opportunity and here's how you're to do it timothy you live as an example of what a Christian is supposed to be. And whether that's an example of the believers. So in other words you live the way a Christian should live. Or an example to the believers. It could be either. But whichever way you take that. The thought's really the same. He's saying Timothy you make sure. That when people look at your life. In these five areas. They are going to see. A living example. Of what a Christian. Is supposed to be. So are you prepared to take that challenge? The first thing he touches is in your speech. Would you say that you are an exemplary believer in your speech? What you say. That's in our home assembly in, uh, in Newmarket. We're in James chapter 3. Or we were in James chapter 3 in, um, in a Bible reading Tuesday night. And uh, it's a 
It's a horrible chapter. I'm sorry, I should not say that. It's the word of God. You know what I mean. It's a wonderful chapter in its challenge to our souls, but it's a terrible chapter in the fact that you, you, know, you take part in my reading and you say all these wonderful things about how you control your tongue and all the things you shouldn't say and all the things you should say. And The very next day, it was a Wednesday, I went to work. And again, Nathan here will know about it because the people that occupy the building just beside ours, they've outgrown their shop, they've outgrown their yard, and they've got this incredibly annoying habit of loading flatbed trucks in the middle of the cul-de-sac right in front of our business. And so when they come, and there's sometimes two trucks parked and forklifts on both sides, and you just can't get through. And we've gone and talked to the owners nicely, and we've suggested lots of things. Well, wouldn't you know it, that Wednesday, I went to leave work in a hurry, and uh, I went and got in my car, got out, and sure enough, there's a truck being loaded, and there's another one waiting, and the whole thing was blocked. And honestly, it probably wasn't more than 45 seconds, but it seemed about 15 minutes that I was stuck. And, I, of course, I got very angry, and... I drove into the driveway of this guy's business and I parked and I went in and I asked for the owner and I started speaking to the owner about how unreasonable it was for him to be blocking our cul-de-sac. And I didn't say anything you know, bad, as you would measure it, but I was very frustrated, very, very frustrated with him. And I got back in my car, started driving across the 407. I got about three or four miles down the road and James chapter three just came crashing into my heart. And I thought, there you go. You know, it sounds so nice to sit in Bible reading and talk about, you know, gracious words proceeding out of his mouth and controlling your tongue. And... But then you're tested on it. So how are you doing with your speech? It's not just your tongue. It's your social media posts. It's your texting to friends. It's things even that you like. It's jokes that are a little off color that you choose to forward. It's video clips that are really at best unprofitable. Or maybe at worst, defiling. But they're funny. And you're forwarding them. It's our speech. Speech can be a very destructive thing. I've already said earlier, speech can be a very hurtful thing. But it can also be a very constructive, very powerful thing. Words are probably the most powerful tool to effect change. So would you say that in your speech, you are an example of what a believer should be? Or there's got to be some adjustments. It's what Paul says, take heed to yourself. Secondly, in your conduct, the way you behave, your lifestyle, the things you choose to do and the things you choose not to do, your activities. Let me ask you this. If you were in a mission field and you were working really hard and you saw people saved who knew nothing much about Christianity at all, but they came out of the, the lifestyle that they were in in their culture with all of its vices and whatever it might be that they have, they came out of that and they trusted the Lord Jesus and with a great desire to honor him, they're trying to learn what Christians live like. And in order to help them understand what Christians live like and what the Christian life really looks like practically, they came across everything you post online. And their window into Christianity is you. Would you say that your conduct is an exemplary Christian life? I don't think any of us would want to claim that you know, we're a poster child for Christianity. That's really not the standard I'm asking you for. I'm just saying, would you be comfortable? Would you be comfortable that your conduct is something that could be held up as an example of a Christian life? That's what Paul's challenging Timothy with. In your speech, in your conduct, in love. Do you love 
other believers? Do you love the unbelievers that you're among, that you have influence with? How would you answer that? I think most of us would like to think the answer is yes, but do you? Is there any proof? Love is much more than just the absence of animosity. Right? Love is not just, well, I got nothing against them. Try that in a marriage. Okay, don't. Actually, don't. <laughs> I take that one back. Don't try that in a marriage, right? Love is much more than just the absence of hostility. I have nothing against them. Love is actively seeking the good of others. That same writer, James. You know, don't just love in words. Easy to love in words. Love indeed. So is your life characteristically marked in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith. This is likely faithfulness. This is steadfastness, to borrow Brother Doug's word. Consistency. Stability. Not flighty. Someone who knows and you're committed and you're trustworthy and you're dependent. Are people in your workplace, people in your family who may not be saved, people in your neighborhood, people in your assembly or in your circle of Christian friends, when they have issues, are they going to turn to you because they know that you are a person that's solid, that they can trust. You're faithful. And finally, in purity. And if ever there's a day when we need to stress the importance of purity, surely it's today. A life that stands in such contrast to the world out there in its purity. Could I just make an appeal to young, younger people especially? Watch your language. Watch your appetites. Be careful what you feed your soul on. Be careful what you watch. There's never been more access to entertainment uh, with Netflix and whatever other streaming services. You can literally watch something 24 hours a day. And the fact is, many, many people are slipping into a lifestyle where they're virtually doing that. And constantly, while you're doing all sorts of other things, there's just endless garbage spewing into your consciousness. I'm not talking about pornography. I'm talking just about the mainstream entertainment media that glorifies and communicates moral standards that are absolutely impure according to the standards of the Word of God. The way men and women interact, the way men and men interact, the way the, the moral fabric continues to constantly be pulled lower. And it streams into your consciousness until subconsciously you're thinking it's normal. And it is normal in our world, but it's not normal for a Christian. shouldn't be. We must learn to cultivate minds that are marked by purity. Purity in the way we think. Purity in our attitudes. Purity in our attire. Purity in our actions. So Paul says to Timothy, take heed to yourself. And I'd like to say the same to you. So if you were to do a self-assessment today, don't blame everybody else in your surroundings, your environment, bad examples, people let you down. What, just for you, for you, in your walk with God, are you willing to take heed to yourself? And if you are, are you willing to make adjustments with God's help? In terms of your character and in terms of your conduct. But then the second part of that statement that Paul makes in verse 16, not only take heed unto thyself, but he says, and unto the doctrine. 
So as Paul is so concerned about this younger man, Timothy, carrying on after Paul's gone, it's as though he's saying in this verse, Timothy, there's a couple of things that are a huge burden to my heart. Number one is you. And Timothy, you just get hold of yourself in the presence of God and you keep going with character and with a conduct that is going to stand the test and help you be the man God wants you to be. But then he says there's something else, Timothy. You take heed to the doctrine. Is doctrine important? Is it important what we believe? Is it necessary for all the Christians in an assembly generally to hold the same truth, to hold doctrinal truth? Or is it enough if we just love the Lord and we interact with one another? Is doctrine just some technicality that causes division? Or is doctrine actually absolutely essential if we're to remain unified as the people of God the way he chooses us to be and instructs us to be? Let me just quote a number of verses, okay? You can't turn to these, but just listen. Listen to some selected verses from these two letters to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 and 3. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 1 Timothy 3 and 15. Local assembly there is described as the pillar and the ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 4 and 6. Paul describes the good doctrine that you have followed. 1 Timothy 4 and 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, or the King James Version says, to doctrine. 1 Timothy 4 and 16, when we've read, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. 1 Timothy 6 and 14, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1 and 13, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me, or the ESV says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. 2 Timothy 2 and 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3 and 14. Continue thou in the things that thou hast learned and hast been assured of. 2 Timothy 4 and 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I'd like to state publicly from this platform that doctrine is essential. And it's under attack. And it does matter what we believe. If you like alliteration, then the word conviction's a good word. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, your character is important. And your conduct is critical. Now he's going to say, Timothy, the doctrine that's been handed down to you. Get a hold of it with conviction. Get it into your soul. And you live your life for that. So again, I'd ask you, what do you believe? Doctrinally, what do you hold? And if tested on it, what price are you willing to pay for it? Or is it all tradable? Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, there's this body of truth that has been handed down. And it's so important, Timothy, that you take heed to the doctrine. Take heed to the teaching. Running through the letter Paul, that Paul writes here, there's an idea of stability that is linked with sound doctrine, healthy teaching, healthy doctrine. It doesn't change. We live in an age where the spirit of the age in general is that change is great. And the newer something is, and the more innovative it is, and the more interesting it sounds, the more appeal it has, right? Now, this is a generational thing. So those of you that are younger than me can get mad at me. Okay, but people my age struggle with change. And people that are older than me are probably even worse. 
I had a very interesting thing at the office the other day. My youngest son, David, who's here, he came into my office, pulls out his iPhone, and he was so excited, the latest, whatever it's called, iOS or iOS or whatever, the latest thing had automatically downloaded. He says, this is amazing. They've updated it. Or I think it was the banking app. It's a new app. I can tell you when I pull out my phone and they automatically update it to a new app, I hate it. Because I don't know how to do anything anymore. But the spirit of the age we live in is that change is great. So if there's a new way to rediscover and to rethink and to reimagine, it's wonderful. Let's all flock to it. You know, one of the things about doctrine... Now, please, I'm going to clarify this in a minute. It's not that something's good just because it's old. That's not the point. But the truth is marked by stability. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. He says in chapter 3 of the second letter, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And then in chapter 2 of the second letter, he says to Timothy, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same. The same commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Perspectives on truth might change. Adherence to truth might change. And thank God over the history of the church, There have been times when people have strayed far away from the truth and there's been revival. And truth has been rediscovered, but the truth itself was there all along. It never changed. And all of the major doctrines of the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter, all of the doctrines of the Bible are stable. And we need to be very, very careful when something comes along that doesn't ring right. It doesn't mean that it may not be right, because certainly there have been times of revival. But simply because something is innovative, rather than finding that attractive, our initial response should probably be somewhat alarming. As we look into the scriptures to see if it's so. But secondly, not only is there the idea of stability linked with sound doctrine in this two letters to Timothy, but there is an idea of stewardship that's linked with sound doctrine. Now, please, this doesn't just apply to overseers. It does, in a very particular way, apply to overseers who are responsible for the feeding of the flock. And in a very particular way, applies to men who speak publicly to teach truth in any public setting under the direction of overseers. But it applies to everybody, brother, sister, young, old. All of us should have convictions about the truth because live long enough and all of us will be tested on what we know And what we believe and what we're willing to cling firmly to. So there's the idea of stewardship that's linked with sound doctrine. Paul says to Timothy in verse 18 of chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. 1 Timothy 6.13. I charge you in the presence of God to keep the commandment. 1 Timothy 6 and 30. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you second timothy 1 and 14 by the holy spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you so as though paul says there is this body of truth revealed by god inspired in the word of god by the spirit of god it has been handed down paul took his stewardship very seriously and the truth was something which he had now imparted timothy had received it And Paul says, you guard it. It's not yours, Timothy. And Timothy, it's not mine. 
Christian living and Christian truth is not a place, a platform for me to propagate my ideas. For me to push my agenda. For me to say, here's the way I see it and here's what I think. And here's... No, the truth's a deposit. It's a stewardship. It's something that originates the mind and the heart and the eternal counsels of God. Centered in his son. Outlining his eternal purpose. And it comes to us. And we are accountable to him as stewards for what we do when it comes to doctrine, to teaching. Thirdly, this idea of sound doctrine has the idea of succession in it. I've already quoted the verse. The things that thou hast heard of me. Paul says, Timothy, you have heard these things from me. You've heard it among many witnesses. These same things you're to commit to faithful men. And you're to make sure that the men you commit them to, that they are able to teach others also. But I want you to notice that the character of the ones from whom we've received truth is relevant in our commitment to keep the truth. When Paul says to Timothy, he says, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And when Paul reminds Timothy of what he had taught him, he reminds him of his own character. He says, Timothy, verse 10 of chapter 3, Second letter, thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, persecutions, afflictions. Paul says, Timothy, you don't only know the truth that I've taught you, but Timothy, you know me. And you know the character of the other men that have taught you the truth. And as you consider the truth, you remember the men that gave their lives to impart this truth to you. Now, I want to speak really carefully here because I don't want to be misunderstood. I should not hold to something simply because I have a place of affection in my heart for the man that taught it to me. Okay, so we don't say, you know, we practice this because Mr. Norman Crawford taught it. I use his name in the area where he labored much. There's people here from Jackson. Mr. Crawford was a great man. But it's not enough for me to just say, well, I believe this is right because Norman Crawford taught it or Jack Hunter taught it or Sidney Maxwell taught it or David Valance teaches it. Or... That's not enough. But hopefully through the teaching of those men, I have learned from the word of God what they have taught me. And when I have, then the character of those men is something I should hold in esteem as I take the stewardship of the truth that they handed to me. So again, be very careful when the tone and tenor of something that's being taught is to cast almost an entire earlier generation under the bus as being irrelevant and being out of touch. Men were not good because they were old and everything they said isn't right and they weren't without flaws and faults. But again, maybe it's because I'm middle-aged, maybe it's because my dad passed away this year, I don't know, but... I'd have to say I'm really learning to respect the reality and the depth and the, for want of a better word, the ballast, the spiritual ballast of a generation that went before mine. They know what they believed. They lived what they believed. They were authentic. They were real. I've seen it with my eyes. I've seen the price many of them paid with their lives. I've gotten close to some who lived decades in adversity for what they believed to be the truth. They're worthy of us following them. 
But finally, there's an idea of simplicity that's linked with sound doctrine. Paul warns Timothy, there's going to be a lot of distractions. There's going to be a lot of debates. There's going to be a lot of, if I could use this word without sounding flippant, there's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be all kinds of things to occupy. And listen to some of the things he says to Timothy. He says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Chapter 6, verse 3, he warns Timothy about a person who teaches a different doctrine, doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Chapter 6, verse 20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 2 Timothy 2 and 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Chapter 2, verse 23 of the second letter, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There's an awful lot of noise out there right now. An awful lot of things that you could become occupied up to your elbows in things that honestly, they're not going to help you. They're not going to help the people around you. They're not going to build up. They're more likely to undermine and tear down. And I'm not just casting a wide net at anybody that doesn't agree with me. That's not the point. The point is that there is healthy, sound teaching. There are doctrines of the New Testament which are vital. They have been taught, they've been handed down. They're in the word of God. The spirit of God can reveal them. Get hold of them. Sink your soul in them. And prepare for times in life when you'll be tested on them. I would just echo what Paul said. I don't know very many of you here actually. But I can tell you honestly for the ones I do know. I speak for I think every man that stands here this week. And we do care about you. A lot of you are younger than us. We do want to see you do well. We can echo at least a little bit of the sentiment that Paul had when he writes to Timothy, knowing that Timothy will outlive him. And he says, Timothy, take heed to yourself. And Timothy, take heed to the doctrine. Let's pray.